Hello and welcome to another edition of P or A Raw. I'm David Russell and I'm here with my co-host, David Paulman. What's up, David? How's it going, Russell? I'm good, man. Uh, crazy week. I had a lot of schoolwork uh, to uh, get turned in this week. I had not turned any of it in, if you know what I mean, for two classes until the day it was due. So <laughs> I, now that's not to say I didn't have some stuff done, but I didn't have it all done. That that's interesting because you were ahead of me in the class that we were taking together, but like I had everything turned in for that almost two weeks ago. Yeah, well, you know what? I I, I did get into a car accident. Oh, so again? Have, again? And I do have a newborn. Yes, again, twice in this year. Now I have been in two car accidents this year. Uh, twenty twenty has not been nice to me as long as you know, just like twenty twenty hasn't else. been nice to anyone. I know, isn't it crazy? But like, I actually was driving down the road after teaching the youth at youth group, you know, and I'm driving down this, my nice windy road, back road to get to my house. And this little deer pops out right in front of me. Little uh, female doe just comes right out in front of me. I don't have, I can't swerve the misser because somebody's coming from the opposite direction. And then uh, the only thing I could really do is to slow down and hit her at about 30 miles an hour. But it was just, a, it was, a, a, you know, I knocked her into the, to the person, the person's driveway that, you know, <laughs> across the street, but she got up and walked away. So she wasn't dead. Well, she was, I was happy about, so I don't like so, killing deers. <laughs> you you, you uh, didn't kill the mother then? No, no, unless I'm going to eat them. That's the only, only time, but no, um, uh, yeah. So it was just enough to cost about, uh, well, five hundred dollars for me for my deductible for my oh. insurance, but it was uh, about total over probably about fifteen hundred dollars total. So yeah, at thirty miles an hour, you hit a deer, you're still going to collect a lot of damage. So yeah, but dealing with that and other things, you know, newborn and all that stuff, you know, we got a lot going on here at this house. So. Well, <laughs> I actually got a birthday party right after this today. Oh, uh, nice! My son has turned five. So, but anyways, enough about me and, and the craziness that's going on in my life. Uh, we've got a special guest with us today, and her name is Erin Burnett. Uh, introduce yourself, Erin. Hello, uh, yeah, my name is Erin. I'm originally from Northern Ireland, but I'm currently studying in Scotland. I'm a theology student, and I'm doing a master's in practical theology. Awesome, awesome. And, you know, we met through Skeptics and Seekers. And we had this interview with you, and, uh, you know, we got the David Johnson version. Now I want to kind of, like, switch gears and kind of push back on some of the things that maybe we talked about there, but also get your story and, and kind of introduce you to this audience because this is more of a debate-type channel. And I just wanted to, to do that, and this is what we're going to do today. So uh, this is a different PRA role. Usually we're critiquing videos, but today we are going to talk and interview Erin on her view. Right, David? That is the plan, yes. Yeah, you just muted your mic, so I made you have to unmute it real quick. <laughs> but anyways, anyways, uh, yeah, so Erin, why don't, why don't you tell us what, uh, a little bit about your view? And like I said, this is about can a Christian be agnostic? So, Aaron, could you just fill us in on what your view is, and uh, you know how you you know how you can be a Christian and an agnostic? So, there's 
there's various different names for my theological view. Like some people call it Christian agnosticism, some call it theological non-realism. That what you actually call it doesn't matter. Essentially, so I am a Christian in the sense that, well, I identify as a Christian. I go to church at least once a week. I'm studying theology. I try and model my life after the way of Jesus. However, when it comes to the supernatural aspects, I am firmly agnostic. So things like the bodily resurrection of Christ or the virgin birth. I don't say that it didn't happen. I just say we can never know for sure either way. In many ways, I wish I had the faith that I could just say, yes, absolutely, I believe it. But unfortunately, despite my best efforts, I don't. You know, I even went to a, I went to an evangelical theological college for my first degree. So it's not for a lack of trying. <laughs> okay. Um, David, you got anything on that? Yeah, just, just one question of clarification. When you say uh, that we can't know for sure, uh, are you using that to, you know, say we can't know with certainty or are you saying we couldn't even have like a, a probabilistic sort of knowledge of these things? We can have a probabil sorry, probabilistic knowledge. I suppose that's the quest of the historian. But we can never know 100% short of having a time machine what actually occurred 2000 years ago in Judea. I am very familiar with the arguments on both sides and I do think both sides make some pretty good arguments which is why I'm stuck in the middle so. <laughs> <laughs> right on um uh yeah you have something to say David no that was it that was it all right so Aaron uh tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to this this uh view here so my Christian background is absolute chaos. So I was raised in like a mainline Christian household. My parents are wonderful people and they're they're proper Christians unlike me. Um, <laughs> but when I was a teenager uh, it was quite a down period in life and it's when you're in a low period that often fundamentalism becomes extremely appealing because I suppose it gives you control in an otherwise uncontrollable universe. So I, I joined a fundamentalist sect towards the end of school and was in it for about almost three years. Uh, very Calvinist, you know, King James only, young earth creationist, the whole shebang. Right. And I don't feel, I don't wholly regret it. I mean, it was a necessary part of life and the people were very nice, genuinely. But unfortunately, towards the end, I became a little bit disillusioned with some of the theology. Um, so then when I went off to theological college, it was just a natural break. And then I started attending a evangelical Anglican church while I was at college. It was actually studying theology that made me really reevaluate everything despite the fact as i said it was an evangelical college it wasn't they were teaching with an aim to make us super christian but even despite that i just i couldn't hold on to it it was things like how painfully arbitrary church history seemed to be and you know discovering biblical criticism um being introduced to john shelby spong who is probably persona non grata in apologetic circles um yeah. Yeah, all of that basically led me away from a supernatural view of the faith 
but I didn't leave the faith altogether because I didn't want to. You know, I I love Christianity and I mean that sincerely. Um, I love going to church. I love the story of Jesus and the Bible, etc. That's why I am still studying theology, despite my views having vastly changed in the past 10 years. But that roughly gets us to where we are today. Roughly, right on. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, as we talked about on Skeptics and Seekers, I have a similar background as, as I went to a fundamentalist church, too, for longer, though. I was It was about seven years, and that was that was truly a good experience because, like you said, the people are nice. And you love the people, but, you know, it kind of makes you disillusioned uh, at the end. And I, I remember one time I was sitting, uh, in, you know, in the in the chair and listening to the pastor. And he was talking about this miracle that occurred about how this guy had, was walking along the road and he got hit by a car. Right. So this guy got hit by a car. His guts are like hanging out. His, you know, his guts and entrails. <laughs> you like my attempt for a british accent there but no um no is you, you know and this pastor just was driving by and happened to see it got out and put his guts back in and prayed over him and he was healed so i went over to the pastor because i thought that story was really cool i mean if that that really happened that would definitely you know uh be documented somewhere you know or something so i asked him where he got this his source from and he could and he, and he couldn't tell me and that was kind of like the first thing that it, it, it kind of raised a red flag. Well, why doesn't he know? I mean, did he, he get this from somebody else telling you and then somebody else telling it? And, you know, it's just it, it, it kind of like kind of started opening my eyes to a lot of the the craziness that goes on in, in very fundamentalist, charismatic areas. Now, we weren't Calvinist which I thank God for. Um, David <laughs> would have some words on that. But uh, so how agnostic are you in a probabilistic degree? I mean, you say we can never know for sure. So and this is David's area, too. So I, I'm going to let him kind of take over here just for a second because I know he wanted to follow up with that. But, uh, yeah. How probabilistic are you in that regard, then? I mean, how where do you land on it? Now, my views are continuously changing and they will keep changing as I study more. At the minute, I pretty much live as if I live as if I was an atheist, but I am not closing off the possibility of the supernatural. I just don't see it. So whatever that makes me. <laughs> All right, David. Uh well, you just, yeah, there you go. There we go. Got it figured out. Uh, no, yeah, um, I think that's interesting. Uh, could you, you know, you seem, it sounds like what you said there is then that you seem to think that it seems more probable that um, there's not the supernatural aspect there, but um, there's still a part of you that wants it to be there. Is that how I'm understanding it? Yeah, I mean, who wouldn't want the idea of there being a loving God who has a plan for us all and that we're going to go to heaven after we die, except me because I'm a heretic, I'm going to hell. Um, you know, things like that, who wouldn't want them to be true? And, you know, I still hope they are. I just, I cannot say for certain. Gotcha. Unfortunately, I'll probably frustrate you because my answer to most questions is just going to be, I don't know. 
Right, right. And well, I mean, I would agree with you in a certain sense, and I'll probably get a lot of Christians mad at me at this point. But um, I would agree with you that we can't know these things for certain. Uh, and, you know, my, my own epistemology, it's, it's evidentialist. Uh, well, as the viewers will know from the last um, episode that we did. Uh, so pretty much everything to me is known in varying degrees of probability. And with regard to, you know, Christianity, it's, it's a religion of history. So if it's true, uh, that's going to be at least our, our level of confidence in it, in it is going to be directly proportionate to the historical evidence that we have. Uh, and you said that you're, you know, you're familiar with that. Um, and, you know, you don't have to put a number on it, of course, but um, what, like, how, how compelling would you find that um, in a way? Like, does it, does it make you, you know, think at all? Is there, you know, something there or like maybe a typical historical resurrection argument? Do you think something like that, that there's pretty easy answers to to that sort of an argument so how compelling do i find the arguments for the resurrection or yeah just uh, general historical arguments for maybe the reliability of the new testament or you could restrict it to the resurrection of jesus i, I know there's different ways of getting there but we, we can just take the resurrection of christ if you want uh how compelling do you find that i mean they're compelling enough that i absolutely believe you can be a fully rational person and believe it i just find the naturalistic explanations i just think they're more probable with what we observe in the world so probable relative to our background knowledge yeah so for example the resurrection appearances of christ which in the earliest gospels and letters of paul they are visions the whole idea of Christ bodily appearing to the disciples doesn't come along until the later Gospels, several decades later. So the idea of Christ appearing to people in a vision, I 100% believe that happened and the disciples were sincere. However, that could easily be explained by post-bereavement hallucinations, which are a very common occurrence. I mean, equally, it could have been supernatural. My point just is, how do we know? <laughs> Right, right. Uh, so I, I hear that there. Uh, so so you would say that there is enough evidence you could see that a person could be rational. So believing in it, it in, is not irrational. Um, it sounds like you said that uh, it's, well, you said that you think a naturalistic explanation would be more, I guess, uh, harmonious with what we observe in the natural world. So I wasn't sure here, are you saying that um, if it's a miraculous occurrence, the probability of it is just like so low based on everything else that we know that these are going to be more probable explanations. Or were you just saying that in like the specific case of the resurrection that uh, we just have better reason to think that this could be explained in a different way? And, and again, if you don't have a like a, a, a firm answer on that, that's fine. I'm just I'm just trying to, you know, see where you're at on this. I suppose ultimately, was it Occam's razor that says the most simplest explanation is the most likely to be true? Yeah. And I do think naturalistic explanations are more simple. I think to believe in the resurrection, it requires what Kierkegaard called a leap of faith, which I unfortunately just can't take. <laughs> Now, what if you took, like, God's existence to be demonstrated on other grounds? So, like, if you took the resurrection, if you put that aside for a moment, and you uh, think that, you know, you have good reasons to think that God exists from maybe a cosmological argument, teleological argument, something like that, do you think, uh, in that case, it becomes more reasonable to believe um, 
and the resurrection if that's part of your background knowledge if like you already have the belief that a god exists who would have the capabilities to do that does that um if you had that in place would that make it uh easier to as you say take that leap of faith with regard to uh, the resurrection or any other miracle claim well, yeah, if you're coming from a theistic point of view, particularly classical theism, you know, where God is all powerful. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, of course, if God can do anything, then anything is possible. Um, I suppose I could be really annoying and ask you to define God because every Christian <laughs> seems to define God differently. <laughs> and it, it is very difficult to do, actually, if you think about it, uh, you know, from the classical theist um, point of view. Uh, and I, I'd be more of what's considered a neoclassical theist because I... I I think that's the same as a form of theistic personalism, but I do believe that God is a person. So, uh, but having, you know, the attributes traditionally attributed to God, you know, minus weird ones like impassibility and such. Uh, Impassibility. That was one of the things that threw me in college. It made no sense how God can be loving as well as impassable. What? (laughs) Yes. Yes. I, I, I've never um, been on the impassibility train like uh and I, I was raised in a denomination similar to what you had described um you know uh, being being very rigid in that way and so we weren't really precise in our theology but when i uh-oh i think we lost her i'm here Hello. i'm here okay i'm here yep all right We're at good. least for me at least for me aaron's uh, video just cut out but that's all right um if, if she's still on uh Oh, goodness, I forgot where I was going with that. No, yeah, I was saying, but yeah, when I was studying this, uh, you know, when I started getting more precise in my own theology and I came across divine impassibility, I was just like, and for anyone who's not familiar with that term, uh, that, as I understand it, it's the doctrine that God uh, cannot be moved or affected in any kind of emotional way by the actions of his creatures or something in the world. And it's probably a better definition of it than that. But yeah, when I came across that doctrine, I was just like, that is so contrary to everything that I believe God is. Yeah, so, okay, I'm glad we're agreed that classical theism has some problems, yeah. Well, any, any, human, any human construct of this is going to have its, its issues. But, uh, Aaron, w- w- one thing that, that really just jumps out at me is this idea of holding a rational uh, or saying that Christians are rational in holding their belief. And then there's the, you know, you still choose naturalism. I mean, if you got two rational positions and you love Christianity so much, why not go with the other rational opinion? What, what stops you from that? Because it would, it would be intellectually dishonest for me personally. And well, we could we could drag the conversation in this direction because I spoke about it a bit on Skeptics mm. and Seekers. For me, the autism element definitely comes into play. Um, I am I, I'm extremely logical to a fault. I am empirical to a fault. So essentially, unless I can empirically experience it, then I can't have faith in it. Essentially. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, David, do you want to follow up with that? Uh, no, I was just, I was, I was thinking about it, but yeah, I didn't have any questions on it. There's a couple other areas I want to cover that, that you said, uh, but I do want to talk about the autism thing. Um, how does autism affect 
your idea of belief and stuff like that. And I know you're saying that it makes you more empirical, but what else could be elements that that can keep somebody from autism? Because I think it's important for uh, us to know and for everybody to know about how autism affects people like that, you know? So first of all, I absolutely do not speak for all autistic people because we're all extremely different. There are various studies that show on average autistic people are much more likely to be either atheist or agnostic compared to the general population. And I can send you some of these studies if you want to prove I'm not just pulling this out of thin air. Um, we can put it in the we can put it in the description. Yeah. So there was one study from the University of British Columbia and it found that whenever autistic people speak of God or believing in God, it's more of a concept than a person. So kind of like the God of, say the God of John Shelby Spong, that God is not a person, that is just a concept. Um, another study found that autistic people tend to think anti-teleologically, which means we don't see overarching meaning, it just is. So for example, this is a very basic example, but if I did well on, a, on an exam, perhaps someone who thinks teleologically would say, oh, God was really with you in that. Whereas I would just be like, nah, I put the effort in, I got the result, A plus B, that, that's it. <laughs> there's, there's no ex external intervention required, it just is. Um, and that's how I view a lot of things, particularly the problem of suffering. You know, I don't seek to try and find a reason for suffering. I just think it's a brute fact of the universe. It just is. <laughs> All right. All right. David, you want to follow up with anything on that? Uh, quick question on that. Uh, and this is still something I'm working through. So I'll be interested to see if uh, what your answer on this is. But um, you know, when you talk about uh, simplicity and explanation, uh, one argument that some theists will bring against naturalism is that uh, it's not actually that simple at all because it has to posit, you know, like literally thousands, even millions of brute facts. So you have so many things that are just so. Uh, whereas in theism, you're really positing one. You're positing that God is the ultimate reality. Uh, so what would you make of sort of that kind of an argument for theism, that theism actually is a simpler explanation because it, it's positing everything, you know, in this one mind, this one being God, as opposed to naturalism, which, you know, like everything physical is that's a brute fact, suffering, that's a brute fact, uh, you know, intelligence and rationality that's a brute fact and you just got like everything you know terminates in something natural and there's so many different things that you just got all of these different brute facts and so that's actually uh the argument goes at any rate that that's a much more complicated uh explanation for reality i think a lot of it comes down to evidence so let, we could go back to the example of the resurrection we have loads and loads of evidence proving that post-bereavement hallucination happens, and it happens a lot. We have zero evidence of people rising from the dead. Of course, the fact that we don't have evidence for it doesn't mean it didn't happen. It just means on probability. I'm going to go with the evidence. 
Right. Uh, now, what if we brought up a counterexample, something like, but do we have evidence of people actually, you know, believing these sorts of experiences, uh, you know, that yep. the person actually come back from that? Because it seemed to me that, at least from my own study on this, that the probability on that is much lower, that most people do not come to the conclusion that, uh, that um, you know, even in their grief that this person they saw, they don't have a long-term belief that that person came back from the dead. Would that be a relevant, you know, counterexample? Yeah, I mean, some do, some don't. But also, you know, we're living in a naturalistic, on a whole, secular world. Um, way back 2000 years ago, when we didn't have such rationalist explanations, I think people would have been much more likely to jump on a supernatural explanation, just like epilepsy was thought to be demon possession because they didn't know otherwise. <laughs> right. Go ahead, David. All right. So, yeah. So then uh, on, I guess, on that particular piece of evidence, then you would see these as both possible explanations, but then one that we have better reason uh, in regard to, you know, just the grief of the, on their part uh, of seeing him again, that that would be a better or, or an explanation that comports better with our experience. And I, I mean, I might even be willing to grant that on that, um, you know, particular piece. That's why, you know, th there's other pieces of evidence. That I think that that explanation would not explain, but um, go into it, David. I, yeah. <laughs> hit me with it. the evidence. Yeah. This is what we're here for. <laughs> convert me. Try I, I, I'll try. try and I'll, I'll say I have not, I have not studied uh, evidence for the resurrection in about like three years now. I've been on other topics, so I, I might be rusty here, but I'll, an, an obvious one that comes to mind would be something like the empty tomb. So if you want to posit that, you know, the explanation for seeing um, for seeing Jesus risen again, the explanation for that is that, uh, you know, that they have this sort of grief after his death, then, you know, how will we explain the physical evidence of the empty tomb? Or is that is that even not something that you're willing to grant for the case because you don't think the evidence for the empty tomb itself is all that good? Well, first of all, I've been to Jerusalem and there are two empty tombs and I can't agree over which one it is, but that's kind of a side point. Um, Probably neither of them, in my opinion. I, I honest, go with, yeah. Yeah, I go with Mark Strauss's view that it was almost certainly whatever tomb it was would have been destroyed a long time ago. Yeah. Um, with that regard, I think I'm with Bart Ehrman in that the whole empty tomb tradition was a later development. Paul doesn't mention an empty tomb. Um, it only comes along later. In fact, the most likely explanation is that crucified victims were just thrown into a mass grave. But again, you know, there's no solid evidence either way. Um, yeah, so when we got uh, a few a few points on that, then uh, let's go to goodness. I am really rusty on this. <laughs> uh, so we've got testimony of women. That would be one thing is if you say the tomb is a later legendary development, then you have to give an explanation for why uh, it, it is that women are said to have discovered the empty tomb. Well, there's quite a simple explanation. That's women were charged with caring for dead bodies, not men. So of course it would be women because that was their job. It would make less sense if it was men. <laughs> But to have them discovering the tomb, because it's not like, because in the story that we have of the women discovering the empty tomb, th this is something, that, you know, Jesus is already sealed up in the tomb. So um, they're not, you know, coming to, or they're going to need 
you know, they're, they're talking about how are they going to even, you know, get to the body and get, uh, you know, because there's a big stone in the way. So it's not like um, it's not like you had to make this up if you wanted to have the uh, story of the tomb being discovered empty. There doesn't seem to be any reason to have it come across the way that it's told, because it's not like we just have the women tending the body before it goes in the tomb. This is something about after it's in the tomb. So I'm not sure if that explanation quite accounts for it. Yeah, fair enough. Although that's another contradiction between the later Gospels and the earliest letters of Paul, because Paul, forgive me, I can't remember if it's Galatians or 1 Corinthians, but in one of them, he says that Christ appeared first to Peter, then the 12, then the 500, then to Paul. No mention of women whatsoever. Yet some of the Gospels say that Jesus appeared to the women before he ever appeared to the disciples. So, But but the, the, doesn't that kind of go to strengthen the idea that you would not have made up women as doing it? Um, you know, it, whether or not that really happens, right? So maybe, maybe Paul is giving us a more accurate account or something that didn't happen. But on the other hand, if, you know... As, as is commonly believed, that people in that day did not take the testimony of women seriously. In fact, it was, you know, uh, we know that Celsus brought that up against Augustine as like, this is a big argument against the reliability of your prime witnesses is that they're women. That's just how people thought back then. Uh, it would make perfect sense for Paul to leave that out. Why would he be mentioning women if uh, that's something that was going to count against his argument? So it actually, in a way, could go to strengthen the case that he left that out. Um, I, I think it's more probable too, and this is my whole idea of, I would like to get Aaron's view here on how she comes across history, because when you're looking at history, you're putting a lot of evidence together, and we see that the evidence in the ancient world is that women aren't reliable witnesses, so why would they put them in there at all in the Gospels? which are still within the time of Paul's writings and the lifetime of the eyewitnesses, right? I mean, Paul's writing in the 40s and 50s. Uh, we know, uh, you, you know, we can we can talk about dating of the Gospels, uh, uh, early dates, and argue whether they're early or later. Even if we go with, with 70 for Mark, we still got this idea of, you know, there's only about 15 years in between these guys writing. They would be able to contradict each other at some point. The evidence of history saying that we actually know that they didn't accept women's testimony. Uh, um, I think that strengthens the case. I mean, what do you think, Aaron? I mean, what is your view on history in that regard? Because you said you were really evidence-based, and I want to know, you know, are you going to accept the history for what it is, or is there something else that we're missing? But again, how do we know it's history and not a story? It's, particularly when, I know this isn't, this doesn't fully prove my argument, but when Paul, the earliest sources don't mention it, and it's only later sources that mention it, how do we know that this is historical fact and not just a later story? <laughs> Well, about a couple points on, on that, I think, is that, first of all, Paul isn't giving, he's not, you know, trying to write narrative here. Uh, and, and I would even go as far as to say, I do think he implies the empty tomb in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, when he states that, you know, Jesus, he says he and he was buried. So I think, uh, uh, you know, an empty tomb is clearly implied in that. Uh, or a mass grave. 
Well, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know how. Not the mass grave, not the mass grave that the Romans would have used because the bodies wouldn't have been buried. They'd have been exposed. Right. That's what I I was thinking. It would have been a burial of some sort. Right, right. So it does seem if if he's Jewish, it would have involved three types of tombs, right? It would have required the the rich type of tomb like we see in our Eastern narratives, right? It would have also implied the uh, the Lazarus type tomb, which is uh, a uh, um, has the soul window and so forth, and then the cheap man's tomb, right? So I mean, it would imply buried would imply in a Jewish context a tomb, right, David? I think that that is correct. Oh, and so Aaron I wants do... to go. Aaron wants to go real quick. <laughs> Sorry. Um, Ladies first. <laughs> another argument, which you can tear to pieces, um, which I have that sort of suggests that the empty tomb story is a later fiction, um, is the character of Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, I think there is good evidence that he was not a real person. For example, first of all, Arimathea isn't a town. Um archaeologists haven't found it and I think it was Spong said that the best translation of Arimathea is just best disciple so Joseph the best disciple sounds like a made-up character <laughs> yeah so a couple of responses on that uh, so you know there are arguments both ways on whether Arimathea has been found or not but um showing that it has not been found that is not in and of itself a proof that it didn't exist and additionally people didn't always take their names from you know, a town. So this could conceivably be something other than a town. Uh, I think an argument for thinking that it probably is not um, something that's made up is the fact that uh, Joseph of Arimathea is said to have been uh, a part of the council that condemned Jesus to death as well. That to me doesn't seem something that is, you know, you would make up as a Christian is that you're going to say, oh, well, the person who treated Jesus right was this guy who was also on the council that condemned him to death. Now, Luke Luke tells us, of course, uh, in his account that, well, Joseph wasn't there when they took the vote. But still, you know, having him associated with uh, the the very council that condemns Jesus to death, there doesn't seem to be any clear reason why someone would make that up to me. And David, you were also gonna. You were also commenting on the earlier argument that she made, uh, and uh, uh, we were talking about uh, what was it? The empty tomb in general. What, what, you remember what you're gonna say on that? Oh yeah, what well, she said. She, she she argued. Uh, how do we know it's historical? Uh, I was oh, saying yeah, that's, one that's one, one argument that it is is the presence of women there. The the response that she gave on that was that um, you know uh, well women took care of dead bodies, but uh, in this case we're talking about a body that's already been taken care of, uh, and instead we're having the story of the discovery of a tomb that's already been sealed that's been opened. There doesn't you know if you're making up the story, there's not any reason. To posit witnesses that everyone thinks is unreliable. Well, I so also, I think I think that is an argument for thinking it's historical. I also I also think that we have to look at the idea that this isn't just something that's made up. These guys are writing uh, Greco-Roman biographies, and it's in that form of literary genre that is a Greco-Roman biography. Am I correct on that? Uh, that that's my opinion. You know, I, I mean, you know, Craig Keener just like wrote this. Huge yeah. poem I just got called Christo Biography, where he makes a case for that. Uh, it, that that's not necessarily like not everyone is willing to agree with that, but I do think that uh, that's the the mainstream view right now. Aaron, anything on those those ideas? I mean, if we're looking at history, I mean, 
and you're going to hold that we can know anything from history, how can we tell then that not all of history is made up and we're actually should be skeptical, uh, uh, philosophical skeptical, you know, you know, skeptical of, of the world in general, right? Being like, you know, we could be uh, in the matrix type of thing, right? I mean, if, if we're going to know, if we can know anything from history, how do, how do you go about knowing things from history? I guess that's where I'm going. Sorry, you know, I'm winging this because it's PRA Raw, so. <laughs> no, that's a very, very valid point. Yeah, exactly. If you take my my view to its extreme conclusion, then yeah, nothing is real. We are in the matrix. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, you know, for example, take the life of Julius Caesar. You know, most historians would say that stuff about battles and empire, etc., is likely to be true. There are also stories that Julius Caesar was born of a virgin. Very few modern historians actually believe that happened. And again, it comes down to naturalism versus supernaturalism. They tend to think uh, the natural stuff, probably. The supernatural stuff, most likely a story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's the thing is like, you know, I would, I, I think you have to look at every account of history on a case-by-case -case basis, mm -hmm. you know, um, such as, you know, did Caesar cross the Rubicon, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I would probably say, yeah, he did. Uh, what's the best evidence for J the resurrection of Jesus? And I think that, you know, I don't, th I don't see any of the naturalistic uh, explanations being able to really over Trump what we actually have as his in history. I mean, there's a reason why these disciples come from this Jewish background and are willing to die for this belief that they saw this guy and it's not just i, I think paul even in, in uh first corinthians 15 is promoting a bodily resurrection i don't think we can i don't think the text allows us to go any other route mm -hmm. so obviously he appeared physically to somebody so that 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 notion is there uh even as early as paul um so i i don't know i think if i'm looking at history and i'm being a a fair judge of history i think that i have to go with the resurrection on it because you know otherwise how can i know how can i really rely on anything from history at that point but anyways you got anything to say on that uh well in terms of do we at least agree that his jesus appearance to paul wasn't bodily because doesn't act say that his travel companions didn't see jesus it was only paul yeah, yeah. I mean, it depends. I, I would have to say that uh, the the debate's out on that one uh, because mm. Paul does talk about he uh, he came to him. Um, he came, he actually came to him. So then, one part in his letters it implies that he had a he he did see the risen Christ, and then in Acts it does seem more like to me a vision. David. Well, I mean, yeah, and I don't think that what we are seeing in the case of Paul is is directly comparable to what we're seeing in the Gospels uh, in, in the same sense, because uh, if if you take the view that the Gospels are the Gospel and Acts are substantially historically reliable, as I do, then you've got already have Jesus ascended into heaven before he appears to Paul. So it's not it wouldn't be surprising to me that the experience would be more, you know, heavenly and. 
I don't know if I would say it is a vision, uh, because, you know, we, we have this, you know, issue of, like, the, the light and stuff when he appears to Paul and stuff. So is that the reason that they can't see him and only Paul can see him? And so, you know, we don't have all those sorts of details worked out for us. But suffice to say, I would say that um, the appearance of Paul is, is going to be in a less... Uh, it's going to be know, more glorious and more even even visionary, if you would want to there, say. And David, there there is something to say on this point is that you know where we do have detail, we do have detail. Where we don't have detail, we don't have detail. And we got to kind of like look at it as it's given to us. So I think that's why for me the the jury's still out on the type of of encounter Paul had. And that that actually brings me back to another question that I. I kind of had here which i would want to bring up because you brought up the issue before of you know well maybe you know the grief can account for uh why they had these visions what about in the case of paul do you agree that he really had a vision because i don't think you could invoke grief on his part because he's a persecutor of christians right do you think he really had the vision that he describes and then if so what accounts for that well his wouldn't have been a grief one yeah um so we have sort of evidence from Paul's writings that suggest he had some kind of illness, which is never defined. I know some people have suggested temporal lobe epilepsy or hypoglycemia, something like that. These things can trigger hallucinatory experiences. And obviously, if he was running around persecuting Christians, Jesus is on his mind. So... I think the naturalistic explanation would be that either epilepsy or hypoglycemia or something else natural caused his vision. And Again, what about... I'm not saying that is 100%. I'm just saying it is an explanation. Right. And that, that might work, you know, that might work if I think if we have Paul, you know, just uh, by himself. But in his own account of it, you know, that there are other people with him, that he experiences actual like blindness for a time until Ananias comes to him and has like the scales fall from his eyes and stuff. Is that all stuff Luke is making up? Or do you think that that is something that uh, that, he, that he actually, you know, had some physical results from that and that there were actually people with him that you know uh well we know that they heard a voice but they didn't they didn't see anyone so um is that all made up stuff or is was that actual a part of paul's experience because if so that seems to give some kind of objectivity to it that there's elements of this being experienced by other people and in that case i don't think you could chalk it up to just being something inside paul's own head well, this is another area in which the history that Luke writes contradicts with Paul's own letters, because Paul mentions, I think it's Galatians, um, that after his conversion, he didn't go to Jerusalem for three years, I think, because he, he wanted to prove the point that he wasn't just copying the disciples. He, he, was a, he got the gospel himself, whereas Luke's history says that Paul basically immediately went to Jerusalem. So, yeah, in, the, in that case, the two narratives don't quite line up and I do think Luke and Acts in general embellishes certain things so there are certainly elements of truth like Paul converted he went to Jerusalem eventually but I don't I think I'll take Paul's own writings over someone else's writings about him in terms of accuracy gotcha okay so that that's all that's all not a part of it then 
again, I'll be annoying. Could be. Could not be. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, you 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 would you would lean towards the view that it's not part of it. Yeah, and I mean, I have other arguments why I doubt Axe is blow by blow historically accurate. I think it's more. It's using embellished stories to tell a vaguely historical tale, but it's certainly embellished quite a bit. <laughs> as, as most history of that era is. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's no secret. It's just the way it was written. <laughs> gotcha. All right. Well, you know, I think um, as for me, I mean, I just see this. The simplest explanation would be for me that that these events did occur. Um, even if you take a minimalist approach, uh, I think it's more probable. I, I don't know why you would you would take from, you know, the the other fields, the other the other explanations over the the Christian explanation. Um, what it's kind of hard to like uh, form a question that way, if you know what I mean. It's you know why why. I mean, we just gave you a rational explanation and, and you, you, you know, you've kind of fell back on, well, it could be and it could not be, you know, you're kind of in, in that position. Um, why not accept the other view? I mean, what's really stopping you from accepting the, the Christian view in, in a way? I just don't think supernaturally. Just don't? <laughs> I, just, I just don't. Right. I just can't see it. I don't have the sensus divinitatis that people speak of. <laughs> well, I, I don't think, you know, you, uh, yeah, and that's the, I don't think you have to have that to. I don't have that. I don't, yeah, I don't either. <laughs> I don't have that. <laughs> I don't, yeah, I mean, I, I just, all the evidence that, that leads up, to, especially in the case of the resurrection, I think is the best evidence we have from the evidence is that he rose again. Um, yeah. Uh, I would want to fall back and try to look at this. I'm going to be evidentially. Go ahead. Go ahead I want to look at this from maybe another perspective. Uh, what would you think then if uh, we presented independent, you know, good reasons for thinking that God exists? Would that, um, would that in any way cause, you know, the evidence for the resurrection to look more compelling to you? Or do you think these naturalistic explanations that you proposed that those would still um, be good enough to uh, account for the resurrection and would make the best historical hypothesis, even if we already thought God exists. I mean, yeah, if you can demonstrate that there is a supernatural entity beyond or, our natural world, then it does or, make things like that more probable. <laughs> or just that you have good reason to, that, that, there's, uh, that there are relevant reasons for thinking that such a being exists. Because obviously, I, I'm also going to be with you that I don't think we could have certainty about the existence of God. I, I know I'm going to get more hate from some Christians there, but I don't only, think it, only and, our precept fans and and the epistemologists <laughs> oh, too. Yes, um, <laughs> oh, <laughs> you'd yeah. be wrong about that. Uh, but yeah, no. So I mean, I do think that this is all. It's a matter of probability. Uh, so I mean, I'm always open to you know having my views changed by by future evidence. I'm an evidentialist. But uh, I do think that we at least have some reasons to think that God's existence is likely uh, or probable. And that's my view on it. And I know at least for me that that, um, well, I do think the evidence for the resurrection is strong enough on its own. For me, it's even easier to accept that because I think I have independent reasons for thinking that God exists. Yeah, although 
you know, to be blunt, it wouldn't really change the day-to-day reality of how I practice Christianity, because my form of Christianity, it's it's very influenced by the teachings of Jesus, particularly the Sermon on the Mount. You know, I love the idea of building the kingdom of heaven on earth instead of just sitting around and waiting to die. And, you know, he has lots of good teachings about, you know, whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me. And yeah, for me, my faith is very practical and it informs how I behave towards other people in the world, really regardless of any supernatural doctrines that may or may not be behind it. (laughs) Yeah, and that's, and we're getting close to the end here. Uh, I just wanted to ask, uh, and this is just a general question for all of you, it's kind of in the title, can you be a Christian and an agnostic? I would personally say you really can't be an actual Christian if you're an agnostic in that way. David, what would you say? I would say I can because I think I was one for uh, the better two years for two years of my life uh, when I was yeah seventeen and eighteen um, I I did not know if God existed and I I could not give an answer on that because I, I just I didn't know at that time it was something I was you know really questioning I was trying to look at the evidence the best I could uh, but honestly I didn't know so I was an agnostic but you know I never I never lost my Christian faith uh, I always you know believed in Christ um, even if it was um, you know one that I felt like I was gonna you know I might be losing at some point uh, I, I never stopped believing in it. There was never a time I stopped saying I was a Christian. I always wanted Christianity to be true. Uh, but yeah, there was a time where I just didn't know. And so if that is how we are understanding a Christian agnostic as somebody who, you know, is believing in Christ, uh, but, you know, really doesn't know, you know, isn't sure, isn't confident. Yeah, I think confidence, that, that would be the key, main thing. If you are believing, even if you're not confident, you could be a Christian agnostic in that sense. Very good, very good. And Aaron? <laughs> Annoying answer. Depends on how you define Christian. If you define Christian as must believe every single point of the Nicene Creed, then I'm not a Christian. Also, half the Anglican Church isn't Christian by that definition. Um if you define Christian as a follower of Christ, then yes, I believe you can be a follower of Christ and be agnostic. All right. So for the last part here, and this is kind of like the speed round, we're just going to give like quick answers and a couple reasons for it. It's going to be just kind of fun. I wrote up a little thing and, uh, you know, the like I said, the rest of this was kind of on the fly and kind of, you know, winging it and just having fun because it's what we do on PRA Raw. We just talk. We just uh, or we critique videos. Um but yeah, so uh, I think God is the best explanation for the beginning of the cosmos, which means I think the cosmological arguments are pretty strong. Uh, Aaron. Uh, well, as a disclaimer, I haven't looked at the cosmological arguments since I was in school, but I can't, one of the main posits of the cosmological argument is that infinite regress is impossible. To that I say, why? <laughs> Why do we need a beginning? What if the universe is just continually in a cycle of expansion and retraction? So you're going with the oscillating view, view yeah. of the universe. Okay. All but right. but Dave- I don't know. I'm not a physicist. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. Da- David? 
Yeah, I mean, I'm not an expert on this. There, some reasons to be skeptical of it is, well, first of all, my own view in epistemology, I'm a classical foundationalist, and uh, classical foundationalism, you know, uh, starts from this idea that, well, you know, look, we have certain beliefs that we infer from other beliefs, which we infer from other beliefs, and uh, this kind of goes down, down, down. How far does that go if I ever want to be justified in, you know, these original beliefs? then there has to be a stopping point. So it's kind of understood that if, you know, this were just beliefs going back infinitely, uh, then, you know, I would never have anything more than conditional justification for all of my beliefs. And that's that's unacceptable to me, uh, just intuitively, that uh, I would actually need actual justification. So from that point, I already don't like the idea of an infinite regress, at least for uh, in terms of being justified. Now, that wouldn't prove that you couldn't actually have one, but uh, I'm saying from that, I already don't like the idea. Some practical reasons to be skeptical of an infinite regress uh, would be, first of all, we have like paradoxes that arise if you say that you can have an actual infinity. Uh, you know, hypothetically, if you can have an actual infinity, imagine you have, you know, a, a library that has an infinite number of red books, infinite number of black books, and, you know, you check out, um, you know, one of the black books. Um, well, you know, we have uh, kind of an interesting situation here. How would, you know, it seems like you should have less black books in there uh, than you would red books, even though, you know, you'd have still have an infinite number of both. So it's, it's, um, there, there just seems to be too many issues with saying that you could really have an infinity. There's the problem of how did we ever get to the present if the, the past goes on infinitely. Uh, those may not be, you know, conclusive proofs that you couldn't have an actual infinity, but it's enough to at least make me very skeptical of um, an infinite past. And for you being an empiricist, Miss Aaron, I'm surprised you don't at least know that Pretty much everybody's rejected the oscillating universe. Every physicist doesn't hold to any oscillating type models anymore. But and, and there's a reason energy. for it. Yeah, yeah. There's just not. Even Hawkins said there's only so much, right? So, um, uh, yeah. And I would also piggyback. I think the successive addition argument pretty much defeats out the concept of an infinite uh, regress. So I don't. I think it's very improbable uh, mathematically. Uh, um, especially when you got the top mathematicians saying that when we say infinity, it's not like we're saying there's infinite amounts of fish in the sea. <laughs> you know, they always say stuff like that because they try to differentiate the concept versus reality in that. Because you know, it, I, they I don't think they believe that there's an actual infinity. But and, and move on to, to the next to, one. Aaron, to, to be you fair, can back on this. Just, just, just. I'm gonna let Aaron respond real quick before we move on to the next quick question. Because I, I only, like I said, I only want to give like 45 seconds to a minute for this. My only for response question. is I really don't know enough about maths and physics to properly comment. <laughs> right on. But, I, you know, I think it's I think it's cool and it's reasonable to us to to say that, you know, I think it's reasonable. Very. Reasonable, and this is because I love this. The subject, this has nothing to do with our argument or anything that the universe didn't have a beginning. I think it's very probable. I think that's where the evidence is going is that the universe actually does have a beginning uh everything that uh the physicists say points to a beginning you know mm -hmm. even though they can't uh account for that or what was before that one billionth of a second right 
So, anyways, okay, so I think God is the best explanation for the fine-tuning of the cosmos from the initial conditions of the universe to planetary conditions and the irreducible complexity we see in the cell. Meaning I think the theological arguments are strong indicators of a designer. Aaron. This one, it doesn't quite convince me again because I'm more like, okay, it just is. Yes, the the conditions of the earth are perfect for life forms like us to evolve. But if the conditions were different, then okay, we wouldn't have, we wouldn't have evolved, but maybe some other type of life force life form would have. Like you're wearing your Star Trek T-shirt. Isn't there an episode of Star Trek where they like find a life form that, oh, I've forgotten what chemical it's based on, but it's totally different to whatever chemical we're based on. And then Dr. McCoy is trying to work out how to perform yeah. surgery on it. And this yeah. is a complete tangent, but yeah. Yes. <laughs> I'm yes. a doctor, Jim. And then, then there's the episode where the where the virus is silicon-based and all this. Yeah. It's yes, really, that's the one yeah. I was thinking of. It was yeah. silicon-based, yes. Yeah. So exactly, you know, if things had been differently, okay, fine, maybe we'd be silicon-based. <laughs> but see, but the, see, that's the thing that gets me real quick, Aaron, is that, you know, that could be, could be, but the evidence suggests that it's not, you know, the evidence points saying that it's not. So, I mean, I, there, there's a could be, looks like you have a census divinitatis for naturalistic stuff. <laughs> <laughs> All right, go ahead, David, you got a response on the design argument there? Yeah, I mean, uh I, I have always had, you know, a long-standing skepticism of the argument from uh, the fine-tuning of the laws of the universe, and the reason for that is because there's just no way to rule out chance on it. You know, you can't do that. I don't think, you know, and, and no offense, Aaron, but uh, just saying, oh well, you know, we wouldn't be here to, you know, worry about it uh, or even think about it if it wasn't that way. That that just states that it is that way, but it, it, the argument is seeking an explanation for that. Uh, but like I said, I don't think you can rule out chance on that. I think it's something that fits much better in theism. Uh, you know, if we say, you know, it, would we expect on naturalism the universe to be finely tuned? Uh, probably not. And on theism, yeah, we would. Can we absolutely rule out naturalism? No. So for me as a theist, it, it, it's something that fits very well in my worldview, but um, something that I can't really definitively answer the chance objection on. So I don't. Well, we've already, well, David, we've already said, Certainty at a hundred percent is kind of off the table. So, what would you give probabilistically here? The problem is there's there's nothing to there's nothing to measure it against in this case. I, I have no I have nothing to you know I, I can't you know. So design does, so 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 fine tuning and information and all that stuff doesn't suggest a mind because everything we well, experience evidentially is that it does. There's not there's not information in the uh, creation of the universe. So th well, this is why I like getting to the biological design argument. Yeah. In biological design, I can actually um, I have the whole entire everything else in the universe to you know use that against the information uh, in the cell. Now this I you know for, we're, we're working inside the universe with you know conditions that I have access to that I can uh, I can measure these out. And so yes, I can say whenever information arises in my experience, it comes from a mind. So I have information in the cell. It's reasonable to posit that this came from a mind. Uh, because I have no reason to think that a natural process can do that. But I don't have that when we're looking at the 
fine-tuning of the universe because I have nothing to compare it with because uh, I don't have other universes. Sure universe. you do. Watch Journey to Creation by Hugh Ross. Uh, <laughs> but no, Sorry, seriously... Two seconds, I need to grab my laptop charger. No, go ahead, go ahead. Seriously, though, we have... We do have... Uh, you know... I, I did... I did. What I wanted to say is I did include the irreducible... You know, the, the irreduced complexity in the cell. So, I mean, that's that, that fits but uh with the entire design argument so that's kind of like what i was going for there oh yeah no i gotcha and i mean i like teleological arguments i'm just saying in regards to the, the specifically the fine tuning of yeah, the you universe. just haven't done you you just haven't done enough study in that we understand heretic <laughs> I, i've done study i just <laughs> there aren't there are there are no refutations to the chance hypothesis on I, th I think there's a probabilistic but that's just me i i but the pro probability is it's always relative to something, and there's nothing yeah, to gauge this relativity to. I don't know, man. I, I have to look more into it, but... Um, I, I say it's something that fits better, given theism. Yeah, I do, too, but I think I think there's good... good. I think, I think it, the evidence flows that way. Oh, I, I, for anyway. sure, and especially when you combine it with something like a cosmological argument, so we're looking at something oh, yeah. with the beginning and something that apparently looks designed... Case. Right. That, that, that then then we start getting a much more convincing theistic argument in that case. But just the fine tuning alone, I don't know on that one. Well, yeah, no argument stands alone, right? Um, I think God is the best explanation for objective morality, meaning I think God, the moral argument is very strong in favor of a theistic personal God. Aaron, what do you think on morality? <laughs> I think if you're looking for objective morality, certainly the Christian Bible is not the place to find it. <laughs> oh, <laughs> salty. All right. Well, uh, David, what do you think on the top of your head here? Uh, well, I think there are a lot of really bad moral arguments out there. Uh, I don't like Craig's version of the moral argument because it, it just it doesn't connect God to morality at all. It's just like if God doesn't exist, then moral values and duties don't exist. Uh, what, what, why? You know, is always what um, I'm thinking at that point. Uh, but I do think it's possible to construct a good <clears throat> moral argument uh, if you look at it teleologically. So I would give a very teleological moral argument. That is when we say something is wrong. When we say it's wrong to do something, then we mean it goes against the purpose of something, right? It's not wrong for me to smash a rock. Why? Because a rock has no purpose. It would be wrong for me to smash a child's head. Why? Because that goes against the purpose uh, that that child exists for. So uh, when I think we're looking at morality in terms of purpose, then that presupposes design in the world. And so then that gives us an actual objective basis for saying that things are right or wrong. And so, yeah, I mean, the atheist, in my opinion, they either have to say that like morality, it just, it just is, it's just something that exists and we don't know why, even though no one has to live by it. And, you know, there's problems with that. Uh, you know, conversely, I think that makes sense in theism. So I'm, I'm on board with a moral argument as long as we're, uh, as long as we're doing it as a teleological moral argument and not like a transcendental moral argument. Yeah, I look at it more of like the moral realism argument, you know, that that is made. I think that's uh, especially the one that, you know, uh, inspiring philosophy does. He actually puts mm -hmm. it really. He, he, he gives a much better on. one. Mm -hmm. um, and and our friend Swan Sona, he does a yep. good one, too, man. I, I really like it. Uh, Aaron, anything else you want to say on it? Yeah. Uh well, I think that the evolutionary explanation for morality, I think, is quite convincing. It also explains why different societies have developed slightly different codes of morals. 
so yeah, essentially. Anything, I think, that, I think anything that contributes really to the overall good of the species becomes moral. So, for example, if you start raping and murdering people, that is not good for the overall growth of the species. And also it causes immense pain. I'm a utilitarian, you know, maximum happiness, maximum people. <laughs> I, I see David thinking over there. Go ahead, David. I'll let well, you I just I, I just want to say, um, you know, if you know you want to say evolution is the explanation for how we know morality, that does not challenge the moral argument. Uh, but are you saying that these things aren't actually, you know, right and wrong? Are you saying that like rape and murder, that these things aren't actually wrong and they simply are not beneficial to uh, one's survival? Well, I just think in, we instinctively know that inflicting suffering, unless we're a socio or psychopath, inflicting suffering on other people is just not right because we have developed as an em empathetic species, much like apes have as well. And it just goes against every code of empathy to inflict suffering on other human beings. Except right, ape, but apes throw poop. Well, so do human children. <laughs> I was going to say, is that something, though, that's, like, actually wrong, in your opinion? That there, there's some reason um, that you shouldn't be doing this? Or it's just something that uh, you're programmed by evolution, you know? not to uh not want to do because if, if you're doing the first one then you still have to give an explanation of it it's not enough to say oh well you know we evolved this way that wouldn't explain why it is actually wrong on the other hand if you're just saying oh well, we just evolved this way to think that it's wrong but it's not actually wrong then uh then that collapses in the moral subjectivism no and i think that is a very solid argument for theism and it's why i'm not a total atheist however i'll go back to my beginning point on the bible I concede that God helps with objective morality. However, the Bible seems to go against that because there are bits where the is, you know, we could talk about this for hours, but you know, the Israelites are commanded to go and storm a city, kill everyone except take the virgins for yourself. That's rape. That's murder. Yeah. How does that oh, gel? Oh, that's rape and that's murder, huh? That's a little anti-Semitic, isn't it? <laughs> there, there are arguments well, you know there is arguments against it I, you know i heard one right. funny one th this weekend and this is just for fun okay this is just to have fun with uh i did hear one this weekend this guy did actually accuse the guy uh for the the whole slaughter of the canaanites he accused the guy making the arguments that it was wrong to kill the canaanites a uh a uh an anti-semitic response and i was like what and then he explained like hey these guys were passing judgment. He said, matter of fact, you're the racist. And he called the person the uh, the racist because he was actually saying that uh, the person that was arguing for the death of the Canaanites being wrong was actually also promoting uh, child sacrifice, rape, and the evil that the Canaanites did and that Israel just basically judged them. <laughs> I just thought it was really interesting. Like, so... You're going to complain when 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 God doesn't do anything about evil in the world, but then complain when God actually does do something about the evil in the world. It was it was just a wild argument. I heard that this week, and that's just for fun. Think about it. It's whatever. Uh, Aaron, you did want to respond, though. Go ahead. Um, well, I think, thankfully, this is pretty good. Again, you're going to question me on how I get my history. But there's pretty good historic evidence that the conquest of the Canaanites was exaggerated in the Bible. I mean, it happened, but it certainly didn't happen to the scale that was described. Because, I mean, the Canaanites kept existing. They weren't wholly wiped out. So, yeah. Yeah, and, and that's where we'd also disagree there is that I don't think God uh, uh, ordered them to wipe them out completely. 
Um, I think that if we read the text correctly, we'll see that uh, uh, you know we do see the Jewish war language inserted in there. And I think if you, I, I think you would probably agree that that you know they did add those in there uh, on purpose. I mean, that was just what they did. That was how they they you know the decimation language and all that is is always part of that war literature that of yeah. the time. Good. You know, one thing I would want to bring up on this is, you know, and there are a lot of arguments with regards to like the specific things, right? Is there exaggeration? Is there hyperbole going on? Um, you know, in fact, I think there are even arguments that uh, the talking about keeping the virgins for yourselves, there are actually good arguments to think that that is not a reference to rape. But, um, you know, although, you know, to me, the biggest problem has always been the commands to kill the children. But uh, putting all that you know, aside, I don't think that should stop a person from embracing Christianity because uh, the doctrine of biblical inerrancy, although it is a doctrine that I hold, it is not in any way a necessary prerequisite to be a Christian. So, I mean, I'd say worst case, you know, take the position of somebody like Greg Boyd, who, uh, you know, uh, he wrote, you know, this whole two volume book on the Canaanite uh, conquest. And he basically wrote, uh, yeah, this stuff was bad. God did not command this. And the authors of scripture were just wrong in thinking that God commanded them to do this. I would rather have somebody come to that position and, you know, believe in Jesus um, than, than think that they have to, you know, have answers to all of that before uh, they can come to faith in Christ. You don't have to accept all of that to be a Christian. Now, you know, I, I think that's something you could work through in your own Christian life. But, you know, if you just come to the point that you can't accept that, don't let that stop you from being a Christian. Well, I have right. read Greg Boyd and I like him a lot. And if I was to believe in God, it would probably be the God of open theism. Like, I think that's what Greg Boyd. Heretic! No, <laughs> Yay! That's the least heretical no. thing I've said all episode. <laughs> no, and I have a lot of respect for Boyd as well. So. Um, okay, so at the end of the day, you know, um, uh, it, it, does anybody, Aaron, do you have anything to say in closing here? Because we're wrapping up now and uh, we do have some exciting news after we let Aaron give her final goodbye. <laughs> I think just to sum up that <laughs> I think you're very intelligent. You make very good arguments. You know, I'm not the standard guest that wants to destroy all your arguments. I'm just going to keep living out my faith as a day-to-day -day practical way of life as opposed to a set of doctrinal propositions that may well change as I get older and study more. So... I'm on a journey to use the massive cliche. <laughs> and, and Aaron, what's really cool about you is that, you know, you're accessible, you're, you know, you're willing to talk about these issues. You're putting yourself out there, which could actually hurt your career. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Say, career yeah. suicide. But, oh, well. Yeah. Uh, but also, you know, uh, it's good to just work through these things together as people just talking through these type of things and, and giving arguments and stuff like that. Um, but uh, you are also an author, so tell us just a little bit about your book and your website so we can get that in the uh, – for if people want to know more about you, they can go and check your stuff out. Yeah. Um, so I wrote a book when I was in high school because I had no life. Um, it's, <laughs> it's, um, it's a fantasy novel for like middle school-aged children with a Christian message. 
and it was published by like an evangelical publisher so don't worry it's proper theology it's not the sort of theology I've been spouting here <laughs> um yeah and my website is erinburnettauthor.co.uk Awesome. Well, David, we got some exciting news uh, for tonight because this this what's great about this episode is it kind of leads into a debate on naturalism versus theism. So stay tuned. Uh, plug in tonight. We're, I'm going to try to go live tonight, guys. I'm going to try to do this live. OK, so I've been playing with OBS software. Yes, I'm pr promoting the brand. OBS is awesome. The studio, it's really cool. So I am going to do my best to get that moving and get us to do a live broadcast tonight so stay tuned tonight if not you'll see it tomorrow if i have technical difficulties we'll see you know i'm not i'm not perfect at this you know i'm just a guy trying to trying to figure all this youtube stuff out so um anyways uh david you got anything else to close with why don't you just close us out sure yeah well i would say yeah i am looking forward to the debate uh it's going to be the the two boys from reason to doubt who they've both been on the show for before uh they'll be taking the atheist side and then i uh, will have travis uh he's taking up the theist side tag teaming with invoking theism which uh it's going to be his first debate uh and if you know invoking theism he is he's like 19 years old and he's crazy smart so uh this is his first debate uh his channel is great and so i'm really excited to feel honored to have him on the channel and i'm going to be excited to see what kind of work he does in this debate uh, yeah, and so thanks everyone for tuning in. Thanks, Aaron, for being on, and uh, y'all catch us next time.